Have you ever wondered why angels appeared to a bunch of random dudes standing out in a field with sheep? Well, it turns out they may not have been as random as we often think. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, I want us to think biblically about the shepherds that we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Now, just to briefly recap what happens in these verses, we see that there are some shepherds out in a field with their flocks, an angel of the Lord suddenly appears. They are afraid, but the angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then from there, the shepherds go and visit Bethlehem to see what happened. When they arrive, they see Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. They tell them what happened with the angels. Everyone is kind of marveled and amazed at what they the shepherds report. Uh, there's the familiar verse of Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds left glorifying and praising God for everything that had happened. So this story seems fairly straightforward. And if you've been going to church for even several years, this is going to be an incredibly familiar story to you. You're going to hear it read in church. Maybe you read it with your family. If you turn on any Christian radio station, you're probably hearing it over and over and over again within different songs. And over time, with the with everything happening with the birth of Christ, because it's a huge story, not just in terms of everything happening, but the, the meaning and impact of God being made in coming to earth in flesh and dwelling among us, arriving not as a conquering king, but as a little baby lying in a manger. You know, it's a huge story. And so within that, often and easily, we can lose sight of what is going on with these shepherds, because like I said at the beginning, they seem random. You know, angels just kind of pop out and start talking to these random guys. You know, what was so special about them? Why them? And what I want to talk about in this episode is five ways that the angels appearing to these shepherds may be more meaningful and significant than we may first imagine. And I'm personally excited to talk about this topic because a lot of this podcast and just this ministry in general is me serving God, but it's serving God through all the things that I like to geek out about and things that weirdly excite me. So, you know, everything I've talked about up to this point in these last 75 episodes, I think we're at, has always been things that interest me or intrigue me. But a lot of times I don't really get to geek out about the historical stuff that happens or the historical context of things. And so this is a bit of a different tone for a lot of the things that I talk about, but I'm still excited because basically I just get a nerd out about the Bible. So here we go. Five things, like I said, that can add significance to what happened with these shepherds. Number one is that these may not have been ordinary shepherds or sheep. A lot of times when we picture this story, we see these shepherds and they're poor guys. They're kind of dirty. Maybe they've been stepping in some sheep pies. You know, they haven't bathed in a while. Um, traditionally within Christianity, we kind of paint them as outcasts. We have a little bit of a false idea that 
they were shunned by society and things like that. And so when we talk about the relevance of the shepherds, we say, oh, well, it's simply, you know, the angels appeared to them because they were just a picture of Christ coming to love the poor. And and that's about it. But a man named David Krotow has a little something more to add to this. And that is the reality that the setting of Bethlehem is significant. Uh, We know that this was the birthplace of King David, and even after all this time, the setting of Bethlehem was still Jewish. Now, knowing where this passage in Luke 2 takes place, we know that at this time, people were still under the Old Testament law with everything that that entailed. And one of the things that it entailed was regular sacrifice of sheep for kind of the, the pausing or the delaying of God's wrath on sin, kind of the covering up of it. And so, you know, what this would mean wasn't that by sacrificing these sheep, their sins would be forgiven necessarily, but it would be a kind of a temporary sacrifice that would always be pointing towards this Messiah that God would be sending, who would be the once for all sacrifice. And so that is what sheep would be used for primarily within a Jewish setting. Obviously, they'd be used for clothing and things like that, but they also had a significance in terms of sheep would be used for these these yearly sacrifices at Jerusalem. And one thing we also know is that these special set-apart sheep who would be sacrificed would need shepherds. And so again, what David Krotow suggests is that when we take all these together, these shepherds were actually, instead of thinking of them as societal outcasts, more likely they were temple workers. They worked with the temple in Jerusalem and would be kind of driving these sheep towards Jerusalem in preparation for the yearly sacrifice that would be coming up. And so what these shepherds were doing wasn't this you know, work that no one else wanted to do, and so they were stuck with it, and everyone was suspicious of them, but instead they were actually performing a very sacred duty. And just to briefly expand on this idea of why these sheep were significant and what it meant within the context of Jesus Christ coming, uh, we can look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, which says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so taken all together, these angels appeared to these men who were essentially temple workers, who were very familiar with the importance and necessity of sheep because it was their duty and their responsibility to care for these sheep and to take them up to Jerusalem for this, as Hebrew says, these repeated same sacrifices. But then here comes these angels and is basically telling them the one-time final sacrifice has been born. And so the significance of this is that these guys who, who were in charge of the regular repeated and imperfect sacrifices were the first ones told about the once for all perfect and final sacrifice who had been born nearby in Bethlehem. Now, the number two thing that adds significance to these shepherds is 
the whole idea of them keeping watch and how it may actually have been a fulfillment of prophecy. So once again, when we're picturing the shepherds, we often picture just a bunch of dudes standing out in an open field and there's some sheep, you know, making the occasional baaing noises around them. A lone angel comes, makes an announcement, and suddenly, boom, there's this huge army of angels singing. And that's what we picture, is just these angels flying around above an open field. But there may be something even more going on here that we may not originally picture. In the 1800s, a man who was born Jewish but converted to Christianity, his name was Alfred Edersheim, he suggested that there is a landmark near Bethlehem that was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy and gives us more context for what it means that they were keeping watch over their flocks. So I want to first just share what this prophecy is. Now this is found in Micah chapter 4 verses 6 to 8. And so it starts off by saying, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So pausing here, this is very much as we know the the life of Jesus Christ, you know, he's talking about he's assembling the lame, those who are driven away, those who are afflicted, and he will basically build them up. He will he will be a blessing. He will bring salvation and comfort to these downtrodden people. And again, we know through Jesus Christ what that ended up looking like. So we know here that this is talking about kind of this future messianic salvation that is coming. And then look at what God continues to say. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So this prophecy kind of ends, at least right here, by talking about, you know, God is addressing this tower of the flock and saying that it shall come to you. And so as we read the New Testament and understand that it can often help us clarify things that happened in the Old Testament, here is what Alfred Edersheim suggests. When we're thinking about this tower of the flock, this was actually the name of a tower near Bethlehem. Now the proper name for this tower was Migdal Eder. And for those of you who have for some reason memorized all of Genesis, you may recognize the Tower of Eder from Genesis chapter 35, verses 19 to 21, which says, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So what we have here is in this Genesis account, Jacob buries Rachel and he builds a tower over her grave. This tower was located near Ephrath, which is today known as Bethlehem, as is clarified in Genesis itself. And this tower is called the Tower of Eder. So what we have here is a tower near Bethlehem, which when we fast forward to our context in Luke 2, this tower was 
called the Tower of the Flock because shepherds would climb up to this tower and they would treat it like any watchtower. They would stand at top of it and it would give them a longer view to be able to better see any predators that may have been coming to attack their flocks. And so here's what Edersheim suggests is that the proclamation of the Messiah's birth came to these men who were standing on top of Migdal Eder. This Tower of Migdal Eder was also called in that day the Tower of the Flock, which was prophesied by the prophet Micah. So again, this adds just some context to the fact that these weren't just some guys and, you know, some angels were just looking for someone off on their own to announce things to, but literally God had prophesied, he had ordained that there would be people standing on this tower of the flock where Rachel had been buried, and they would, these angels would announce the coming of God's son and the birth of him in Bethlehem. And so again, it just, it adds this really cool and sovereign aspect to the reality that they were, they were where God had always ordained that they would be, and that these men, these possible temple workers in charge of the yearly sacrifices would be the ones told about the birth of the final sacrifice. Now, number three is that when we think about these swaddling clothes, this may have been more than just a baby blanket. Now, I do want to give a warning here that I have kind of been uh, digging through various commentaries and things like that, and I've seen people mention this, but I've been unable to track down a historical source for this. So this could very well be one of those things, kind of like the three wise men where people have just said it for so long that it's kind of been accepted by people. But I do want to at least mention it because if it is true, it does add just another fascinating aspect to it. But I will say with this number three, proceed with caution. And I guess I shouldn't leave you hanging about the uh, three wise men either. We know from the story that these wise men or these magi brought three gifts. We have no idea how many men there were. We assume each man brought one gift because that's just good and proper, but there could have been 20. There could have been two. We're not really sure. Anyway, moving on. So now that we know to proceed with caution, again, with these swaddling clothes within the story, we often picture maybe a variety of different things. We might picture some dirty blankets that they had to wrap this baby in because there was no room for them in the inn. We may think of maybe they had just some clean clothes in a travel bag that they wrapped baby Jesus in, or we may just picture just a simple cloth that they just had on hand for when he was born. But regardless of what it is, we often just picture, you know, often a poor situation, maybe even a very desperate situation as poor Joseph is trying to, you know, bring rest and comfort for his very pregnant wife who was having to give birth in this dirty animal stall. But... What this theory suggests is that these clothes that we think of as swaddling clothes may not have been just a cloth of some sort, whether a cloak or a blanket or whatever. It may not have been just a cloth that they used to swaddle Jesus, but that they were literally swaddling clothes. In other words, clothes or clothing or cloth specifically designed for swaddling. Now, to explain kind of what I mean by that grammatically, if someone said that they have that they bought a pair of running shoes, you would know that they were a pair of shoes specifically designed and purchased for running. Likewise, swaddling clothes would be specifically designed and purchased for swaddling a baby something. And so where the theory really comes together here is that they suggest that 
Swaddling cloth was used by shepherds to mark the firstborn lamb that was born to a mother. Now, why that's significant, we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 19, which says, All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So these shepherds who would be in charge of these sheep and helping them with their their baby lamb birthing would know that by Old Testament law, they would take the firstborn male born of a herd and they would set it aside as a dedication to the Lord. And that lamb was very important because it couldn't do it any work. It could not be sheared, shorn. It couldn't have its hair cut. It was purely dedicated to God. And so where this swaddling blanket might come in, and again, I can't find any historical evidence that says that this is how they did it. But according to the theory, when they would set this baby lamb apart, this baby male lamb, they would wrap it in a special blanket that was specifically set aside for this this purpose of setting aside the firstborn male who would be sacrificed for sin. And this would do two things. One is the special blanket would make them noteworthy and say, okay, this warrants the blanket we need to set aside. It is special. It needs to be protected. And this blanket would also potentially keep the lamb from harm because when you swaddle a baby, it's so that it can't go, you know, flapping all around and scratching their face and things like that. I have four kids. Trust me, you want to swaddle babies. And so where this would be noteworthy then is that when these shepherds who, again, would have worked for the Jewish temple and would have been very familiar with how Old Testament law plays in to the birth of lambs, if they would have come in and seen a baby wrapped in a cloth specifically designed for a sacrificial lamb, then that would have added even more weight to what it is that they were seeing and that they were seeing the birth of their Messiah who was, you know, while right now cute was born to grow up specifically for the purpose of being a sacrifice for sin. Now, number four that I'd like to talk about is what is meant or even understood when the angels are talking about peace and what the context of peace would have meant to people in that day. Because today, when we think about it, we think about this familiar verse, about, you know, peace on earth and goodwill to those with whom God is pleased. We think, oh, you know, people aren't going to be angry. There's not going to be war and things like that. But peace in that day was actually very significant and unique and had a very specific understanding by people in that time. So first, I want to kind of set the stage for what the world looked like. And we actually are very familiar with this. And we even pass over it because it seems boring. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Rome at that time controlled basically the entire known world, not the whole, whole world, but Rome, the Roman Empire was so expansive and had so dominated the world that as far as they knew, they basically had their fingers in every area of civilization. They had conquered everything. And so what Caesar Augustus is doing here is this is part of this plan that he had to create what's called the Pax Romana. 
Um, and this was a part of Rome controlling the world and having oversight over everything happening. It wasn't just a bunch of little cities or little empires doing their own thing and giving tithes necessarily, but there was a unity and a harmony that existed throughout every area of the Roman Empire. And so when Caesar Augustus wanted to register the whole world, this was part of that Pax Romana. Now, that might be an unfamiliar term, Pax Romana. What is that? What it literally translates to is the Roman peace or the peace of Rome. Because in that time, uh, this started with Caesar Augustus, and he created a peace and a safety across the entire Roman Empire that was completely unheard of and seemed even impossible in that day. And remember, the Roman Empire was massive. I mean, it spread everywhere. And Caesar Augustus was able to create such a peace among different peoples, among different belief groups, so that there was no war, no insurgency, no rebellion within this empire. Everyone lived in some form of peace that had been granted by Caesar Augustus. And this peace was started, like I said, by Caesar Augustus, the same guy who, as we read further in Luke 2, is basically responsible for a very pregnant Mary having to travel all the way to Bethlehem just to get registered. But this lasted for almost 200 years. Uh, even the early church lived under the Pax Romana, and it went to about 180 AD. And so this peace was, again, significant to people in that day. And when someone talked about peace, their mind would have immediately gone to this Roman peace. And this peace, as understood by them, it would have been this global blessing. Everyone was at peace. Everyone was enjoying peace. And this peace was given, it was granted by Rome. The government, and maybe even more specifically Caesar Augustus, would have been the one responsible. He would have been the creator of peace. Now, the, the Pax Romana was upheld through things like laws and even military dominance so that people would keep and maintain the peace. And overall, this just created a peace that had really never been known in the world up to that point. And so people in that day would have thought, wow, this is, this is a true peace. This is amazing. This is incredible. But then here comes these angels, and what are they doing? They're not saying, we're going to make it even more peaceful than Rome. Instead, they are singing a completely different song. Because what do they say? In Luke 2, 13 and 14, it says that there was a, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. So here these angels come, and they are announcing peace. They are saying there has not been peace before, but now God is bringing peace. And this would have been weird at first because they would have said, wait, we already have peace. What do you mean God is, is bringing peace, that there is now going to be peace on earth? There already is. But these angels clarify and they make a very important distinction when they say peace among those with whom God is pleased. And so this peace was not going to be something that the world knew or was familiar with. It, because right now the world knew peace through military dominance. They knew peace to be granted by a human being. And we also know that this peace was not guaranteed. Again, while it was an incredible thing that was created through the Pax Romana, it only lasted 200 years. So contrast that peace, this kind of dominant military thing where people had peace because of fear, and consider the peace created through Jesus Christ. 
This peace was granted by Jesus Christ's sacrifice on a cross. This peace was total. And it's never-ending. It's not just going to last 200 years. And it wasn't just this forced peace between all people in the world, but instead it's talking about peace between a holy God and a sinful people. And so this is where peace is especially significant in this shepherd story is that when they are announced that there would be peace on earth, it's not just this bodily peace where society itself is peaceful, but instead something much more significant and even much more seemingly impossible would happen. Because it wasn't just peace among people, but it would be peace between people who loved sin, who were in rebellion to God, who acted as his enemies, who could do nothing to save themselves. It would be a peace between those people and a holy God who hates sin, whose judgment was upon them, who has been storing up wrath for sin. And that is the peace that Jesus Christ was bringing. And that is the peace that these people would have been confronted with when trying to understand worldly peace versus godly peace. And then the final thing to talk about is that the shepherds visited the good shepherd. Now, obviously, this is an easy connection. We have shepherds, we have Jesus who identifies himself later as a shepherd. But we often forget in the midst of just talking about this story in general that Jesus is much more than just a baby. He was a baby born with a purpose. He was the God-man sent to earth specifically to live a perfect life and die. And so while, yes, he is that sacrificial lamb, he is also our shepherd. And he talks about that in John 10, verses 11 to 16. And I'm going to shorten this just for sake of listening. But, you know, obviously, uh, references in the show notes, you can go read the fuller context. But it says... I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so here, Jesus Christ is amazingly and incredibly talking about how he would die. He would lay down his life for his sheep, not just the sheep in his audience, which would have been the the Jewish sheep, if you will. But when he talks about there's other sheep that are not part of this fold, he's talking about this salvation that would go out to Gentiles, which we are very thankful for, because unless you are born Jewish, you get the inheritance that Jesus Christ gives because he died not just for Israel, but for all his sheep that are in the world. And through that, we have one flock. We are one people brought together through the sacrifice and death and salvation brought by Jesus Christ. But what's really neat here is that the shepherds who would have been familiar with how, can we say unintelligent sometimes sheep can be, they who were accustomed to being in charge of sheep and protecting them and and even being willing to die to save them from predators, they were also lost sheep looking at their shepherd. And we know that we're all lost sheep, and it's, it's said beautifully in Isaiah 53, 6, which says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are all lost. We all need payment for our sin. Either we will stand before the great throne judgment of God and he will 
look and say, we, you need to be held accountable for all the laws that you broke, all the crime that you committed against me and my name. Or he will look at us and say, your crimes have been paid for. My wrath has been satisfied. And we have those two options or those two realities because Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep. He died taking our place on the cross under the Father's wrath because without him, there was nothing that we could possibly do to save ourselves. That is how total and absolute our sinful depravity is and how total and absolute our need for Jesus Christ was and why his sacrifice was the one-time payment because it was total and it was absolute. It wasn't like these other lamb sacrifices that the Jews would have been familiar with where it was this repeated thing because it could never fully take away sin. It was just this kind of temporary thing. Instead, Jesus Christ would be the lamb and the shepherd for his people. He would be both. He would be the sacrifice and the one who would protect those who were helpless. And so, you know, at this time, maybe the shepherds didn't understand it. Maybe they didn't realize that this little baby was going to entail all of this. But as we look back and as they looked back, they would have realized that this little cute baby was going to lay down his life for them. He would have been to them what a good shepherd should be, which is a willingness to protect them at all costs, even at the cost of his own life. And so to wrap this up, when we're looking at this story of the shepherds, what we're really seeing is not just a story about some random guys hanging out in a field, but the story of the shepherds points them and us to a lamb, a shepherd, and a savior. Because as I talked in the last point, God reveals Christ with two kind of interesting sheep metaphors. On one hand, he's the perfect sacrificial lamb. There's not a repeat sacrifice. There's not another Jesus Christ coming or another savior coming. This was the one-time perfect and final sacrifice for sin. And so in that way, God's word paints him as a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb. But at the same time, it paints him as a shepherd. And this shepherd is in charge of a bunch of sheep who aren't just accidentally lost, but who love getting lost. We love to run away. We love to rebel. We love to sit in our sin and not know what is, is good or right for us. And so... Our good shepherd died to rescue us. And not just that, but he also leads us today as a shepherd leads his sheep to safety and where they ought to go. And both of these pictures as lamb and shepherd show us Christ's goodness and his perfection. They show us that he was born to die, that that little baby was always on a single path marching to the cross to take our place under God's wrath. And during that walk, he lived that perfect life so that he didn't have to pay for his own sin. And when he took our place under God's wrath, he took our sin onto himself. Every lie we've told, every lustful thought, every moment of anger, he, he took that on himself as if to tell God, I am guilty of this. I am the one who did this. Punish me for it. And in exchange for that, when we ask Jesus Christ to save us, he doesn't just take our place under God's wrath, but that perfect life he lived, he then applies that to us so that God can look at us and treat us as though we've lived the life that Christ always has. So when God thinks about us, when he looks at us, the way he treats us as his children, we aren't just people who 
are filled with sin, but he's just going to overlook it. But instead, he looks at us like he looked at Jesus Christ, like he looks at Jesus Christ, in that we have never sinned in terms of how God's wrath is on us. We have been given Jesus Christ's righteousness because he took the guilt of our sin and we get the benefit of his perfection. Now, it's not to say we don't sin, unfortunately, but when God looks at us in our sin, he doesn't look at us and punish us in some kind of wrathful way, but instead he loves us and he brings us out of our sin. He wants us to grow and spiritually mature. And we have that with God because of what he did on the cross. In John 1 29, when it says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's part of what that means. God has given us peace with him through Jesus Christ. We no longer need to live in fear. We no longer need to make sacrifices. We no longer have to obey a law or else. But instead, we as sinful people, as lost sheep, have peace with the Holy God, with the Heavenly Father, through his Son, who died on the cross for us. And so the story of the shepherds, while there's a lot going on, one thing that it can do and one thing that it should do is that it should call us to praise God. We can praise God for the message that was given to the shepherds. And we can also praise him because of the peace we now have between our heavenly father and a herd of wandering sheep. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.